Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you again for another episode of Australia's Future. Uh, Much to discuss, as always, we'll be talking about Liz Truss and the implosion of the UK government, uh, the federal budget next Tuesday and what that means for the future of Australia, and the challenges politically, economically and culturally facing the coalition in the road to 2025. Uh, Tony, Liz Truss, Prime Minister only for... Uh, a few short weeks, uh, is leading a government that seems to be in disarray, hanging by a thread. I was reading the Telegraph, uh, the UK paper this morning, and a new poll in there saying uh, 80% of UK voters view Liz Truss unfavourably, and another poll of Tory party members found just 38% thought that she should stay in the role, with the remainder thinking that she should Resign so perilous times for this trust in the Tory government. Uh, Tony, can you share with us your insights as to what's happening there and what do we make of all of this? Thanks, Dan. I know Liz Truss quite well because uh, she was good enough as Secretary of State for Trade to appoint me as an honorary advisor to the UK Board of Trade. And in that position, I think I have been, amongst other things, able to help expedite and facilitate the Australia-UK trade deal, which was concluded uh, uh, um, in the last few months. So, so look, I know Liz Truss well. She's a capable, determined, resilient politician. It's noteworthy that there have now been three female British Prime Ministers, uh, all three of them uh, from the Conservative side of politics. It's also noteworthy that the Boris Johnson and uh, then the Liz Truss cabinets are the most multi-ethnic cabinets uh, anywhere in the world, which just goes to show uh, what a non-racist place contemporary Britain is. Look, obviously, uh, the Trust government has made heavy weather of its mini-budget. Mm. Um, personally, I think there was a lot to be said for the mini-budget. Uh, cutting the top rate of tax was a good thing to do. And it was, after all, only restoring the top rate of tax that had existed for most of the Blair-Brown-Labor years. Cutting the basic rate of tax was a good thing to do. Um, Cutting the company tax rate was a good thing to do. Scrapping the increase in the national insurance contribution uh, was a good thing to do. Mm. Um, I think you could argue about the energy subsidies, whether they were too great and uh, how well targeted they were. But certainly Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were absolutely right in wanting to remove supply side constraints and get the economy going. For too long, like so many economies, the British economy has been hamstrung by too many rules, regulations and hurdles Mm. on our most productive people. So what she and her then-Chancellor were doing was absolutely right. My sense of Liz Truss is that this is not a surrender, it's just a tactical retreat, uh, and that uh, provided she's still there in a few months' time, she will find other ways 
probably ways that don't involve the need uh, for legislation uh, to address supply-side constraints uh, within the UK economy. Mm. She's rock-solid on Ukraine. Uh, she's rock-solid on China. Uh, she believes in Britain. Um, I think she has the potential to do a good job despite this extremely rocky start. Th there are three particular problems, if I might say, mm. um, two of which are unique to Britain. One is a general problem. Um, the unique problems for Britain are this is a 12-year-old government. Yep. Uh, there have now been four prime ministers. That means that there are a whole lot of, um, dare I say, it, embittered ex-ministers in the parliament who are only too ready uh, to spill their guts to journalists and make trouble because someone else has been promoted, not them. Look, one of the sad features of modern democracy is that there are too many people who are in it for the career yeah. and not for the cause, uh, and they think that the world is going to end if they aren't preferred and promoted. And uh, it's frankly uh, a sign of bad character, mm. but it's all too prevalent in Britain as regrettably it is in Australia too. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that the British establishment is riddled with declinism and defeatism. Yeah. And this has been the case since the 1920s, frankly. It's a century of declinism and defeatism, which is completely unjustified by the facts. No country on earth is more capable of success than Britain, which has, let's face it, given the world uh, our common language, English, um, the mother of parliaments, uh, the rule of law, the industrial revolution, the emancipation of minorities, all these things were pioneered and in many cases perfected uh, in Britain. So this idea that Britain uh, is in some way incapable is just absurd mm. and yet uh, this uh, dreadful affliction uh, has been uh, rampant across the British establishment for decades and... Um, the EU uh, was really the comfort bear uh, for the declinist establishment mm. and the declinist establishment has never forgiven the current government for Brexit. Yeah. Uh, they want or the, people. The, the government to fail uh, and frankly, if they hurt Britain in the process, they don't care. Mm. That's the tragedy of all of this. The final problem, which is a general problem, is that uh, the 24-7 media cycle uh, the rise of the outrage industry fueled by social media and so on, it's making it harder and harder for all governments, but particularly governments of the, the centre-right. Um, uh, the trust government, what the trust government did, sure, uh, the ground could have been prepared better. Sure, um, ministers shouldn't have been as shell-shocked by the initial reaction uh, as they were, but it was a perfectly defensible package that was sabotaged by uh, internal dissent uh, and markets run by woke hedge fund managers uh, who uh, um, are easily spooked, particularly yeah. by the measures of centre-right governments. So, so look, the lesson for centre-right politicians everywhere is um, you can't be put off at the first whiff of grape, grape shot, so to speak. Um, you've got to have the courage of your convictions. Um, you've got to think your policies through very, very carefully. You've got to argue for them consistently 
and you've got to be prepared to stick with them when things get tough. Mm. Now, as I said, uh, I think it's very important that Britain succeed. I think it's very important that Liz Truss succeed. Um, I am willing that to happen from 12,000 miles away, and I hope it does. Well, you make a good point about the markets because that's what they said about Brexit. Mm. Remember, they had the big operation fear that once Brexit happened, the markets would tank because it was going to disrupt trade and all these other things, and it was just so blatantly. And and despite all the hysteria of the last couple of weeks, um, Britain's fundamental economic position is better than that of any of the other big economies in Europe. It's Mm. better than the German position. It's better than the French position. In many respects, it's better than the United States position. Mm. But because Liz Truss was bucking the leftist consensus, uh, there has been this hysterical overreaction to what she's proposed. I just want to pick up on something that I thought you said which was pretty significant, which is to do with declinism and defeatism Mm. going back a number of decades in the UK. To what do you attribute that? Is it mostly to do with a, a sense of guilt about the colonial past? Is it the uh, a lack of cultural self-confidence and, a, uh, I guess, an uncertainty about Britain's place in the world? Um, to what do you attribute that declinism that you referenced? Well, um, I, I think Britain, like uh, France and Germany, uh, was, was psychically wounded by the Great War. Mm. Uh, to lose the best and the brightest of a generation or two was a catastrophe, an absolute catastrophe. And uh, at the same time as Britain suffered horrendous losses in that war, um, the empire went from being an economic boost to an economic burden. Mm. Um, Britain, understandably, uh, didn't want to relinquish the empire because it, I think, understandably enough, saw the empire, in those days at least, uh, as a means of bringing justice, mm. uh, freedom and material advance uh, to, uh, to the countries of the empire. Um, obviously, uh, uh, the Indian independence campaign in particular uh, started to change attitudes to empire in Britain uh, as, as well as elsewhere. And uh, as we've seen in more recent times... Uh, um, notwithstanding the fact that uh, no country on earth has done more to end slavery than the mm, United mm. Kingdom. I mean, the Royal Navy's West African squadron uh, for about 50-odd years uh, totally suppressed the transatlantic slave trade at the cost of thousands of lives mm. uh, of British sailors. So, so, so look, um, uh, paradoxically, um, the country that has done most to abolish this heinous uh, situation um, is now, it seems, uh, most guilt-ridden about it. Uh, again, it's it just it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I guess uh, uh, we're creatures of emotion um, as much as we are creatures of logic and reason. So I think I think that's played a role. But again, so much comes down to leadership. Uh, uh, Churchill rallied the British nation in 1940, the darkest hour. Uh, when no other leader could have. Uh, Thatcher revived the British nation again in the 1980s uh, after what looked to be a a very bleak period. In his own way, Blair was a great booster for Britain and in foreign policy at least, I think, was a a very effective Prime Minister. Boris Johnson, um, whatever faults Boris Johnson had, uh, 
he was wonderful uh, at pep-talking the country, um, even if some of his policies might have been counterproductive, like his net-zero obsession. Yeah. But, but look, um, Britain's been written off many times. Uh, somehow it always comes back, and it will again, and hopefully uh, under the current government and current prime ministership. Mm. Oh, thank you, Tony. I just want to ask you a specific question about the, the tax cuts and the retreat on the mini-budget. I agree with you that there was so much of that budget that was good. It was overwhelmingly better than it was not. Do you think that the – it seemed to me that there was a, a rapid, unrelenting media onslaught on it and perhaps in addition to some of the grievances that former ministers had had and maybe personality differences, um, they didn't want to see it succeed and did not want to see Liz Truss succeed. Um, do you think that those are the reasons why – she had to make the retreat, or were there other sort of factors involved? Well, I, th- I think the, the the internal dissent was the biggest single factor, and there is no doubt that there were lots of senior members of the Tory party in the House of Commons who were only too happy to white-hand their new leader. Mm. And as I said, it reflects very ill on them, very, very ill on them. It's a serious character flaw. And they might not have liked the result, uh, but nevertheless, it was a legitimate result under the rules and they should have accepted it and made the most of it. And if they had any issues, they should have um, disclosed it privately to the Prime Minister uh, or raised it in the appropriate internal party forum Mm. uh, rather than blab uh, uh, in the coward's castle of uh, background briefings uh, to to journalists. But look... um, Look, it, 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 is, it is what it is. Um, I'm afraid uh, politics brings out the best and the worst in people's characters. Uh, there are some very, very good people in our public life. There are also a lot of people who, uh, I guess, uh, are corrupted by, morally corrupted by the desire for preferment. And uh, that's what we've seen. I think we've seen moral corruption I'm not talking about financial yeah, uh, yeah. impropriety. We've seen, we've seen the the corruption of character at work inside the British Conservative Party over the last few weeks. Well, speaking of taxes and coming closer to home now, uh, we've got the budget next week, next Tuesday, which will be delivered by uh, the Treasurer, the first um, Labor uh, budget of this government, and. I think it's against the backdrop of a lot of very challenging economic and financial situations. Uh, we have a trillion dollars in debt at the federal level, uh, spending which is increased rapidly, very high taxes. Um, do you think that this budget, you know, reflecting on your experience with your 2014 budget, which, you know, in hindsight was the last credible, genuine attempt made to try and get the structural problems of the budget mm-hmm. fixed? Mm-hmm. Um, looking ahead to, to Tuesday and what the Labor Party might do in government, do you have any sense of will they try and have a veneer of fiscal discipline uh, or will this be a spendathon? What's your sort of take on the politics and the economics of the situation? I, I hope it's a, it's a responsible budget. Mm. And as a patriotic Australian, I want the Albanese government to succeed. And uh, I think that the Prime Minister is... A decent human being, and I have no reason to doubt uh, that uh, that that 
that most of his cabinet likewise are, are decent human beings who are doing their best by our country in accordance with their own lights. I do think, though, that uh, it is likely to be a spendathon. Um, the Labor Party has moved a long way to the green left since the days of Hawke and Keating. I mean, when Hawke was PM and Keating was Treasurer, uh, we had by far the most economically responsible Labor government ever, and we had a government which put in place some very serious economic reforms that were largely supported by the then opposition and which were built upon uh, by John Howard and Peter Costello. That's really what gave us 25 years of very good government hmm. um, by any normal standards and and made us uh, really the Western world's miracle economy. So, so look, Labor governments certainly can do well. The Hawke-Keating government did do well. Uh, I hope that it's more Hawke than Whitlam, mm -hmm. but I suspect that it's more likely to be more Whitlam than Hawke. Uh, obviously, the NDIS is an issue. We had uh, Bill Shorten talking about that uh, uh, right now. Um, yeah. Uh, something that was supposed to be costing $44 billion a year in 2025 is now, uh, Labor admits, going to cost $50 billion a year. The governance of the NDIS is is just wrong. It's essentially a demand-driven scheme that's accountable to no one because ministerial councils, uh, by their nature, are yeah. incapable of providing the kind of strong direction and leadership which entities need. So the NDIS is a problem. Um, Labor made, I think, some injudicious commitments during the election, uh, for instance, to um, keep subsidising the childcare costs of households earning a more than a half a million dollars a year, just to name one. Um, quite rightly, the government... Uh, accepts the need to continue to further increase uh, military spending. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of pressure on the budget. I, I think there's also a fundamental difficulty uh, that Labor's got, and that is uh, we are extraordinarily dependent uh, for our economic prosperity and indeed for our budget strength on exports of iron ore, coal and gas. Yep. And yet the Green left... Uh, is increasingly against resources generally, but it's particularly against fossil fuels, coal and gas. Now, uh, at the moment, we'd, we'd, we're doing $200 billion, uh, plus a year in exports of coal and gas, and yet I can't see any new coal and gas projects getting underway uh, under this government, particularly given the kind of lawfare we are seeing from the Green Groups, which uh, is facilitated uh, by changes which I regret to say the Howard government made to the EPBC Act mm. um, under uh, Robert Hill's tenure as Environment Minister. You're talking about Section 487 yeah, and you yeah, tried to get rid of that. Yeah, yeah, I tried to get rid of he it. He got it through the House but it got stuck Filed in the, in the Senate, yeah, yeah as, so, as so many things did. So look, um, I, 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 I think... There are, there are fundamental problems which I think uh, are going to be very difficult for this government to handle, but please uh, prove me wrong. Mm. Uh, Jim Chalmers, has, the Treasurer, has on occasions said the right thing. Yeah. Let's see how much he can do the right thing uh, when the budget comes down next week. Yeah, and I mentioned the, the 2014 budget 
And you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, but I think it's really important because we're now getting on to a decade, really, without any serious fiscal discipline. Um, and yes, you can debate COVID and, and so forth, but at the end of the day, we've had a, a coalition government that has run up record debt, record spending, record taxes, um, essentially giving bipartisan license to this spending. So it's going to be very difficult for the coalition to point to Labor and say, hey, you guys are spending so much, you're running up the debt, when Labor says, well, you were in government for 10 years uh, and ran it up yourself. So what I'm what I'm concerned about is uh, when you were in government and when you first came into the, the prime ministership and in the lead up to that, you, you talked about the debt and deficit disaster mm-hmm. and it was a genuinely contested political issue mm-hmm. and then you did something about it in the first budget. Um, what's your take on, on the current debate or lack thereof around, around budget discipline and debt repayments? Well, I hope that uh, as uh, the defeat earlier this year recedes uh, into the past, that mm. the coalition under Peter Dutton will become more robust. I can understand why uh, the opposition wanted to keep a fairly low profile early on. But I think as the government starts to make some difficult decisions and starts to make what I think are some significant mistakes, it'll be easier for the Dutton-led opposition to take a strong and robust position. Uh, I think the government uh, is potentially vulnerable uh, as early as the next election because, um, as you say, these are challenging circumstances. They're strategically challenging. They're economically challenging. They're more perilous than we've faced for many, many decades. And the government, as well as making injudicious spending commitments pre-election, it also made three fundamental economic commitments. First, to cut power bills by $275 per household per year, that's obviously a complete fantasy. Uh, Second, to increase, not reduce, real wages, and outside of a few heavily unionised industries like perhaps construction, that's not going to happen. And third, to honour the Morrison government's stage three tax cuts. Now, having tested the water in recent weeks over these tax cuts, for the moment, the government has decided not to rescind them, but plainly, Uh, They do have a Senate majority to rescind them if they want. And I would be extremely surprised if the pressure, the green left pressure inside the government doesn't uh, either explicitly rescind or substantially amend those stage three tax cuts. So they're they're going to be three very serious broken promises. Um, And if, as I suspect... Uh, by the middle of 2025, with further closures of coal-fired power stations, um, with uh, continuing pressure on on energy prices, particularly gas, mm. I think we are going to struggle to keep the lights on. Um, mm. And so far, notwithstanding uh, having front row seats to the energy train wreck in Europe, uh, instead of saying, whoa, 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 uh, we're seeing... Uh, what happens when you go helter-skelter for renewables uh, um, without uh, nuclear and without sufficient gas to firm uh, renewables when the wind won't blow and the sun doesn't shine, instead of going, hang on a minute, let's rethink this, they're doubling down. Mm. Chris Bowen is almost hysterical in his approach to this. Um, The answer to all of our energy problems apparently are yet more renewables. But the fundamental difficulty is that we need power 24-7. 
and renewables only work when the weather's right. Yeah, no, you're spot on. There's a lot of uh, wishing uh, for things to be a certain way, uh, but we've got the reality to deal with. Um, we can't run energy policy or indeed any substantial policy on the basis of let's pretend. And, and we are pretending that somehow uh, we can move from uh, coal producing more than 60% of our power to less than 10% yeah. in just eight years yeah. and somehow we can build wind and solar uh, production facilities at breakneck speed in just eight years and probably uh, the most ridiculous part of all that we can produce all of the extra transmission lines yeah, that's right. uh, in just eight years for this new decentralised grid and somehow, despite spending upwards of $100 billion, prices are going to go down, not up. I mean, it is simply crackers, simply crackers, but almost no one uh, in mainstream political leadership at the moment is prepared to call this out. No, you're right. And I just want to pick up on this theme of what I would interpret or refer to as being the true radical nature of Labor. And they sort of flew under the radar um, in the lead up to the last election. We didn't really have a heavily contested policy space. Um, but the point that a lot of us have been making is, well, just look at what they look at what they want to do. So if you think about Australia, if Labor gets two terms... They want to have the voice to parliament to divide us by race. They want us to be a republic. They want a bill of rights, but not the good kind of bill of rights like in the US, but one based on more government. Uh, lower the voting age to, to 16. A federal ICAC, which will be stacked out with radical, unaccountable left-wing judges. Um, and that's just the beginning, in addition to all the climate. So this is a very radical government, I think more radical than Whitlam. So in terms of 2025, they're certainly beatable. I don't think these views accord with the views of most Australians, but I'm interested in your perspective. Well, I, I agree. Uh, in the end, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. Mm. Uh, but it does take a strong opposition to point out exactly where the government is going wrong and exactly how we could do differently and better. Yep. And that was what I tried to do back in 2013, where I kept saying that uh, change the government and we'll stop the boats, we'll scrap the taxes, we'll fix the budget and we'll build the roads and um, that's exactly what we did, um, notwithstanding the sabotage in the Senate of the 2014 budget to a considerable extent. So, 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 so bad governments are sometimes saved by bad oppositions. Um, I'm pretty optimistic though, knowing Peter Dutton as I do and knowing Angus Taylor as I do, both very good people, uh, both people of, of very sound instincts and judgment and I think uh, what we'll see is growing political courage and conviction over the next couple of years from them. So look, um, we shouldn't... Uh, we, we of the centre-right, we of the liberal conservative disposition should not despair. Uh, yes, I, I suspect things will get worse before they get better. Mm. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's always darkest just before the dawn, as they say, Dan. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And just one final thing to, um, to finish on, we're probably going to have wall-to-wall Labor governments on the mainland, uh, if the polling is correct, and you know maybe it will be, maybe it won't be, but 
Uh, looks like New South Wales will go Labor next year. We don't know what will happen in Victoria, but again, on the polling, it'll be Labor here. So you have the whole mainland as, as, as Labor in addition to a, la- a Labor government in, in Canberra. So I think there's going to be a one or two year period where they're really going to put the pedal to the metal. You know, they Labor historically has um, not been in government at the federal level very often, but when they are, um, they use the levers of power to great effect. Um, you know, perhaps Hawke and Keating were a fraction, maybe an exception to that, but they really do try and change things very, very rapidly. So um, I think that the the sooner that we have uh, a, a, a solid critique of the government and what they're doing, the better off we'll be. I agree, Dan. Uh, as I said uh, earlier, as a, as a patriot, patriotic Australians, we, we have to want the government to succeed, but its idea of success and our idea of success is pretty different. And yep. uh, yes, uh, at the election, the Prime Minister presented himself as safe change. Yeah. In fact, during the campaign, it was almost as if Labor didn't want to change anything uh, except uh, the person who was in the lodge, capitalising on some antagonism to Scott Morrison. Now that they're safely there, oh yes, everything's going to change and you enumerated some of the very, very significant changes that they're intending to make. Uh, I think that um, there's every likelihood that this government will be like the Ardern government in New Zealand. Um, Ardern, once she lost the handbrake of Winston Peters in New Zealand first, uh, has run an extremely left-wing government and at the heart of it is this Maori co-governance idea and that's exactly what we'll get if the voice gets up at next year's referendum. So so look, um, what I think we typically see from left-wing governments is uh, uh, an unashamedness about cracking on with a left-wing agenda. Uh, They have the courage of their political convictions whereas a lot of centre-right governments seem incredibly timid Mm. uh, about uh, saying what they believe and uh, trying to implement their beliefs. Well, on that note, Tony, I know you're a very busy man, so we will uh, leave it there. Uh, But thank you again for your time and your thoughts and your insights, and I'm looking forward to continuing these conversations over the coming weeks and months. Me too, Dan. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.